Hi guys, thanks so much for joining us on Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. I'm your host. I was recently on a podcast called Check Your Bias. Everybody should check it out. And I was on there as myself, Kristen Olson, a trial lawyer in Portland, Oregon. So I might start switching on and off between the Kristen Olson and the Karen monikers. Um, Karen is kind of fun for all of us just because that's how we started this journey. And the more the podcast has grown and the more positive feedback that I've received and the amount of people that I've met is exploding. And I want to meet all these people in my own name. So that's my name. I may, you know, call myself Karen is a joke from time to time, or people may continue to call me that. But for those of you who are confused when you hear the name Kristen being used, that's my name and that's why it's being used. I'm going to upload the original audio from the Check Your Bias podcast um, to this podcast feed also because it was fun, a good podcast to check out. And it's some uh, former actor, a former FBI agent, and a former lapsed. LDS Mormon who do a podcast in the suburbs of Portland. So they don't really touch on a lot of uh, Portland issues, although, you know, every once in a while they might have somebody like me on to talk about what's going on over here. Although I will say the drive to their podcast was like driving to a different country. And I actually talk about that on the podcast, just how sort of how all the garbage and the encampments and things disappear. Portland really is an island unto itself in a lot of ways. I'm really excited to have you guys here. Our guest is Rene Gonzalez. He's running for Portland City Council. He is running to unseat the incumbent Joanne Hardesty. It's a hotly contested race. Another opponent is Vadim Mazirsky. Vadim Mazirsky is also a lawyer. He is a disability law judge. And he is a, I think everybody would agree, a formidable opponent. And a lot of listeners have been asking who should they vote for, Renee or Vadim. And hopefully this might answer some of your questions. And Renee will give you a little more insight about who he is, what he's about, what his policies are, and you can make a better and more informed choice on your ballot. Renee, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. We decided to turn the record button on because we were just sort of talking about this safe rest ordinance that was passed June 30th, 2021. And there's some history to this that you were about to explain to me. So I'm sorry, you were going to take us all the way back to the the eighties. Yeah. So a little bit of background. So since 1981, it has been illegal to camp in an unsanctioned environment in the city of Portland. And uh, there are a couple exceptions to that. But that's per uh, city ordinance. And you've seen, particularly the last decade, a real erosion in the city's ability to enforce its own ordinance. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. We had a couple of orders from Charlie Hale when he was mayor um, that greatly limited when they would enforce. Uh, that started the sanctioned camping, right? Essentially, yes. And you say, I mean, in a time, I, you know, you go back and read the original. Uh, mayoral order, it would specify what times and what kind of situations they would enforce it. Um, and when I say they would enforce it, I mean the original ordinance, the 1981 ordinance, the prohibiting uh, unsanctioned camping. But <laughs> what 
also built on it, there was a, piece, a settlement called the Anderson Settlement, which I think was, I always get it mixed up, 2012 or 2015, um, that this really put in place the protocols, right? The, the notice on before you would sweep a camp, how many hours, and basically you had a, a group of homeless, some homeless advocates sued the city over, you know, throwing away personal property in a camp. And um, then you fast forward, we've got the Ida, you know, the, the Boise case, then codified in Oregon law. Um, and you have a number. The num- Boise case just says, if you want them, if you want homeless off your street, you have to have somewhere to put them, right? Yeah, essentially cruel and it's cruel and unusual punishment right. to enforce a, a no camping uh, ban or no camping ordinance unless you're offering alternative shelter. And that's been codified under Oregon law um, in the, I think the last general legislative session. Um, but those are your, kind of your three pieces of uh, limitation on the city's ability to enforce what's been on the book since 1981. You've got the Anderson settlement, you've got the um, Oregon law in the, in the Ninth Circuit decision, although they, they roughly do the same thing. Um, those have all been uh, synthesized into the city's protocol cleaning up camps. And um, I think, you know, going forward, we're going to have to really look at unwinding the Anderson settlement. I think there's a real question as to whether, um, because originally the court's jurisdiction on that was three years. And it's kind of a fundamental question. How does the settlement tie the hands of future city council indefinitely, right? And uh, right now it is, but it is the law of the land in the city of Portland. Um, that greatly ties your ability to, you know, promptly clean up camps. And uh, and that's that you've got to give a certain amount of notice, and notice has to be posted, and there are some procedural hoops That's right. that the city has to jump through before it does a, a quote-unquote encampment sweep. Exactly. And, uh, and all of those, both the Anderson Settlement and Oregon Law and uh, the Boise case, are synthesized in the the, the, the current protocol. Um, but yeah, we're gonna have to, I mean, so if we get to the point where we have sufficient shelter uh, and we can really tackle what that means under Oregon law and under Ninth Circuit law, um, but we have to tackle the Anderson settlement because, you know, we get in, and one of my basic hypotheses is that we, you know, we homogenize a highly segmented population. And you guys have talked about it on your podcast before. I mean, got super high rates of disability very high on that rate is uh, in in that in that group is addiction mental illness and if you break that down just focusing on those suffering from substance use disorder which is doctors correcting my language around calling it addiction but uh if if you focus on that group and we literally have a segment that are using tents as drug dens right and so you ask them you sweep them and they literally move down a couple of blocks to set up a new drug den. Well, that's a pretty vicious, awful cycle of enablement on the streets of Portland. And to really confront that, I think, you know, giving notice continuously to someone setting up what amounts to a drug den, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? We're never really interrupting that cycle. And um, so long story short, I think we've got to tackle the Anderson settlement in terms of how we're addressing some of the folks struggling with addiction to really break that cycle, plus the criminal elements that are surrounding, you know, a lot of these unsanctioned camps. I mean, you're, you tell someone who's got a chop shop, well, you've got to move, you know, from here, they set it up two blocks away, three blocks away. We never really break up that 
And I, and I think we've got to get to the point where we're offering sufficient shelter, we're enforcing the ban on unsanctioned camping, and we're not going to give you a lot of notice, if any notice, to enforcing that, that ordinance. Well, and I, I think you can do it in a humane way. I mean, when Kevin Falconer was mayor of San Diego, he set to work day one building tons and tons of shelters to make sure everybody had somewhere to go to. And he had lockers set up for people's stuff so there wouldn't be an argument about their things, like a stuffed animal from childhood or or something that they still had that they cared about, some kind of possession that I think it probably would be inhumane to just take away from that person, even if they are camping on a public sidewalk, because they're clearly not well. Um, And he would store their stuff and get them in a shelter, help them reunite with family, make calls, have the whole staff figure out, triage them, get, get them some diagnoses. Yes. Like, get, let's if, if you have substance abuse issues, let's get you set up with rehab. If you have mental health issues, let's get you set up with a psychiatrist. Let's engage in multiple diagnoses if we need to, as many as we need to with wraparound services. What if they, they still don't comply because these are... When when you have that, your brain is so hijacked by this. Have you have you heard about this P to P meth that Sam yeah. Quinones talks about? And when your brain is so hijacked by that kind of stuff, I mean that is everywhere in Portland. And the, these are not super functional people, obviously. What do we do with this this service resistant population? Of which I think this must be because when Wheeler, when Mayor Wheeler went into the enormous homeless encampment that was going on in Laurelhurst. Yeah, and I think it was roughly 50% explicitly turned down shelter options. I mean, at least 50%. Yeah, that's not even the help. Right. That's just a, 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 a cot and a, a roof over your head, really. And then they turn that down. That's not even engaging in some kind of Under, services. Addressing the underlying causes of the, uh, you know, or underlying contributors to this, their situation. No, I mean, nobody in the city of Portland wants to talk directly about service resistance, right? Like, they, and... Unless you, you know, I've been labeled as the person who's very, you know, pro cleaning up homeless camps and unsanctioned camps. So I get this question all the time, but you don't really hear policymakers confront that reality that we have a certain segment of our population that no matter what services we offer are going to be service resistant. And uh, we sort of talk past that issue. Um, Some of those are, are simply folks struggling with substance use disorder, mental illness, that because of the condition they're in, they are, they're not welcoming services. I mean, that's in, you well, know. if I were on heroin, frankly, I don't know that I would want. To get I'm off it. I'm not ready to right. detox like <laughs> right. today. Like, right. I mean, that's really serious stuff. Or alcoholism, even scarier, where you could die if you detox. I mean, especially if you're towards the end of your life anyway, you're just like. F you, I'm just going to live it out on the streets here with my 40 and I'm going to do it my way. I, I, I think detox sounds, I understand why the detox sounds a, terrible. Well, especially when you look at the segment of those struggling with, you know, addiction, substance use disorder that have an underlying trauma or mental illness. A that million live, percent. Right. I mean, they, and so... They Sexual are li- abuse, right. physical abuse, horrific things that you know have been happening to them on the street as the, well. It's only gotten worse, right? They've and got to have something to numb out. 
And exactly. I mean, and you talk to the, you know, the gentleman who runs Bybee Lake, he brings this up all the time. Yeah, he was an addict, but he was an addict to treat an underlying trauma, right? A number of underlying traumas in his life that he argues that his addiction saved his life. It actually allowed him to be some semblance of a functioning human being for a period of time before he was able to actually get into the underlying traumas. It's plural. There was more than one yeah. uh, that contributed to that. And to, and that is, this is a brutal reality, right? That, that if um, you're going to have service resistance for a lot of good reasons, for some of the ones you hit there, that is just, uh, detox is awful, it's brutal. And depending on which chemical you're dependent on, it, you know, it could be deadly. I mean, you know, are, mental illness is also awful to tackle head on because you are, I mean, schizophrenia is one thing. Sure, you could have had a perfectly wonderful childhood and being extremely mentally ill. But a lot of, of our mentally ill population, my dad was one of these people, um, the idea of sitting down when you're in your 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, with somebody you've never met before and going through all the reasons that you're not well yeah. is... Daunting to say the least, and frankly, it's it's repellent. It, it, and I, I get it. I mean, it sounds repellent to me just thinking about it. To be forced to engage in services, or you know, unless you're not ready. And the, the the challenge for us right now, right, is that we have a brutal cycle of enablement because we do allow anything goes. We do, you know, we say we don't, but you know, materially we do. Do right? we say we don't? Oh, I mean. You know, I think a lot of the homeless advocates would say that um, we are doing sweeps, uh, that we are interrupting uh, the cycle of life that many on our streets have adopted. You know, I don't necessarily agree with that take entirely, but I, they would say we are, we, we've already criminalized homelessness. We're already doing sweeps. Yeah, you're right. They would say the sweeps of homeless camps are happening. If you look around, it's apparent that sweeps are happening more and more, especially compared to 2020, 2021. You know, this very frank conversation we're having right now about homelessness is, I think, one of the reasons you've been called a conservative or right wing by publications like Willamette Week. One of the reasons Shreya Mayfield, who's running for Multnomah County chair and is of Egyptian descent, is called a white supremacist. One of the reasons that epithets have been lobbed at you, a Latino and a lifelong Democrat, uh, is because you you both and Stephen Cox, you a gay man, you all speak very frankly about things like homelessness, and you say all the hard things. And I think what separates people like you, Stephen, Shariah, from these other candidates is that you've been called these epithets, and they might have stung. I'm sure they stung, like they did for me. And I'm not diverse, so it would be way worse if you're diverse. They sting the first time around, but you get over it. If you want to speak frankly about these issues, you have to stop being scared and let people lob epithets like that at you. And conservative is an epithet in Portland. And you realize that once they do lob those epithets at you, the fear dissipates because the epithet's been lobbed and you just move forward. I think that's a that's dead on. I mean, you, you know, in plight Portland being labeled any of those things was so devastating or even hinting at the label um, that you avoided it at all cost. And, but at the same time, you saw those terms being used more broadly and more indiscriminately at the same time as 
really fundamental things about livability in the city were declining. So our language was getting more proscribed and our livability was declining in really material ways. I mean, close schools was one It had a bunch of aspects to it that were devastating as a parent, as a city. And then you open your eyes to what's going on in your, at the same time in terms of crime and homelessness. And it's every bit as devastating. Um, I mean, there's really moments where I question whether Western cities can continue in, in anything that looks like the last 20 years, whether the next 20 years on the current path we're on, can we continue as, you know, uh, highly dense, uh, big populations? And so you have this horribly declining reality before our eyes. And if you call it that, if you address that, you're labeled a certain thing. And after a while, the labels just don't matter. I mean, the reality is so bad and its, tra its trajectory is so bad. And maybe that's to be more precise. We're not as bad as we could be. It, 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 could, it can be worse than what it is right now. Uh, but the traje trajectory is, is really negative. And we all see it before our eyes. We can all feel it. We can see it. But if you speak up about it, you get labeled the same thing you got labeled on open schools. And at some point, you don't care what you're labeled. You just don't care. Well, it's so, I was inspired by you as a concerned parent. The parents in Portland who wanted schools to reopen were criticized as supporting white supremacy pretty blatantly. Certainly on parent Facebook groups I was on. In fact, there was an article written about this by a Portland parent on a popular website called Scary Mommy that was widely shared. Parents in Portland who wanted schools to reopen were labeled teacher killers, grandma killers, and understandably, a lot of parents who wanted schools to open were afraid to speak out. What do you think distinguished you from, I mean, there were a lot of us who were afraid of those epithets. And like you said, once you speak up and you're called all those names, they begin to lose their resonance, and I guess you just get used to them. Um, but what enabled you to speak up in the first place? Like, what distinguishes you from what I think was the silent majority of parents that wanted schools open, but they were cowed by things like this article. They just didn't want to be grouped with Trump supporters. What gave you the courage to speak up in the first place in a way that the silent majority of us weren't able to? Yeah, I, I think there's three things there. Um, you know, the, the racial aspect, you would hear advocates for continuing to keep schools closed speak in racial terms, and you'd hear terms like BIPOC, and it really at a fundamental level. One, Latinos struggle with that term, you know, particularly Latinos of a certain generation. Where the hell do we fit into the BIPOC definition? We can go on that topic. It's a separate. Well, and how do you feel about Latinx? I hate the term. I'm Latino. You know, it's a it's a bastardization of the language. Uh, it it's was a gendered language. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I mean, it, and, you know, introduced by some white sociology professor 25 years ago, and, and then it becomes the de facto uh, way to um, describe a culture or, you know, a community. So I hate the term. 
Uh, I struggle with the term BIPOC, as do a lot of Latinos. A lot of Hispanics struggle with where they fit into that, uh, depending on your age. And so, so, but, so the racialization of school reopenings, right out of the gate, some of the folks that were so adamantly pro-closing and hiding behind race as the justification for it, it didn't fit, it didn't resonate, it was, you know, fundamentally, uh, my household, I'm, you know, I'm half Latino, my wife is half Latina, and that we want our kids back in school. So don't, you know, you don't speak on behalf of us and don't speak on, and we won't speak on behalf of you. So the, there was a dissonance right out of the gate, like the race part didn't make sense. Second, like really fundamentally, you know, adults are supposed to look out for kids the I, it, we're supposed to look out for the next generation and that's how our species continues and that's such a fundamental piece and you know you can go back to old illusions you know children shouldn't pay for the sins of their fathers and you know they, they, at a fundamental level we were struggling to confront the pandemic that cost should not be borne by children and i don't know where that comes from other than I mean, I think that's just the way a lot of us were raised, that our job is to protect and look out for the next generation, really, you know, to a point of self-sacrifice if it's necessary to look out for the next generation. And I think you're either, that's either part of your DNA from way back or not, and it's part of my DNA. I think the last piece I've always had a challenge with bullies, and there was an element of this that felt like uh, people were using the political process and sort of bullying to push their own agenda. And um, once you sniff that out, and look, there there were venerable underlying pushes, for example, underinvestment in public schools. I think we all want more investment in public schools, particularly a public school parent, you know, which we, we were, um, and, um, but don't use a pandemic to get that investment, right? And there was an element of a lot of the school closure push to use it as leverage in a, in a labor dispute to assure further investment in, in public, in the public school system. And I just, that's flat out wrong. I, it, I had, you know, it felt like bullying. It felt like leveraging. Uh, it felt like highly manipulative labor engagement uh, in holding kids hostage. And so, I don't know, the combination, it tripped multiple wires, uh, honestly, for me. And, um, and then it just kept going on and on. And you were seeing kids in other parts of the country have a better life than kids in Portland, Oregon, and parents to boot. Um, and it, 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 I, combination of those factors, I'd say, but it, sort of turning to homelessness and crime. I mean, we're um, the parallels are. It's such a fundamental challenge to livability in the city, and um, we have never seen homicide rates like we're seeing right now, um, in, in at least in my adult lifetime in Portland. Um, homelessness has gotten so much worse, and. Um, it, it's not a little bit worse. It's materially worse. And sure, there were trends pre-pandemic, but it is, it, it's just so fundamentally eating at the city that, um, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I don't know how you can look out the door and not speak up. 
and be very direct about it at, at this point in time. What about the fact that when Dan Ryan didn't vote to defund the police, his house was vandalized with impunity no less than seven times? I mean, are you worried about that kind of backlash that seems to be tolerated in this city? I mean, you have to consider it as a factor, I mean, or as is a, is a is some probability that you're going to be confronting some lunatics, you know, and um, I'm a father and I worry about the safety of my children. I, I, I'm a husband and I worry about the safety of my wife. So um, you have to accept that there's risk there and just we've got to push back on it. Um, but there's particular risk in this city. I mean, I don't hear about city councilors, mayors getting their condos set on fire right. for advancing opinions that are unpopular with the far fringe left. I just don't hear, maybe it happens, I don't hear about it let, anywhere Let me else. give you an even more precise framing of what you're, you're getting at. So when I started running, I asked, you know, my consultant, we have a high mucky muck Democratic consultant advising our campaign and the, the question was how do I prepare my wife for what we're about to go through and it was it was you know it's um, or prepare my family I mean it's like you know for what we're seeing coming and it, it, the, the comment back was I've been doing politics in the Northwest for over 20 years and until the last two years you never saw in places like Portland or Seattle people marching on a city council person's home or the mayors. This is a new phenomenon. This is, uh, Portland has always been, had a, an agro element, sure. I mean, at least in, you know, at least in modern history. I think we were always proud, myself included. I'm sure you were too, of our history of protest in the city. Yes. Over things that were totally, usually unjust and worthy of protesting. Yeah, it, for sure. And it, it's part of our culture, it's part of our history. But the last two years, something changed in Portland and Seattle. And it's not, it happened up there too, maybe not to the degree here, of people marching on elected officials' homes and protests and fires and vandalization. That is a modern development in the Northwest. And so um, I, it has not always been that way. That is a new reality. Um, and Did I don't- Does consultant have an idea about what shifted? No. I mean, other than to recognize that that's that is a um, that is a new phenomenon, and um, but then we all have to sit here and confront this reality. Is okay. So Portland has a history of protest, great, but in the last two years, those protests have in you know have gone after elected officials at their homes, and. Um, where are we going to draw the line? And, and, you know, it's like, it's, it's, are we going to let that kind of thuggery, for lack of a better term, dictate political rhetoric, dictate political life in our city? We're just, we're at a point where we're well, I think we're gonna, we are I right mean, now. It, it, it's, yeah, and it, if we don't push back, if we don't say no, right, if we do, it, it, it's a, it's no return. We don't have a functioning city. We don't have a functioning society. But how it? do you say no if the DA isn't putting anybody away? How do you say no if 
the police aren't arresting these people. I, I think that we went on a downward spiral of accepting chaos, and I think on the way out, we'll, I think we'll get positive reinforcement. I think one person stands up, multiple people stand up. And, um, you know, I, the rhetoric has changed. No one's cutting police budgets right now. I mean, that's impossible in the city of Portland. That is, and just in a year and a half, that, has, that is completely politically un, un, unpalatable, right? And, um, you know... Is that it, a fact? I... I didn't, I, I'm hopeful I, that's true. You, I just, I mean, I am speculating there, but the reality of further police cuts in this environment just seem impossible, right? Um, just listening to the language out of the, our existing city council people. And, okay, but what about this homelessness stuff? Like, if you're willing to take on the ACLU, something that no one in any city in America that I can think of has done on this issue... I think you can expect a fair amount of blowback from the houseless advocates, many of whom are the same people <laughs> who wanted not just defund but abolish the police. Right. It's uh, reinforced. I mean, it's it's. I I have confidence that people are responding to speaking directly on the issue. Right. That that gives me confidence. I you know, and I'll give you little examples like. Police were not going to endorse in this race. They, they, you know, they've had their hand bit so many times of getting involved and that they weren't going to endorse. They stepped out kind of after Oregonian and endorsed. And and those are just little data points, but you're seeing enough uh, people in the city of Portland just sort of saying, we are at a crossroad. And if we don't stand up and don't speak up, now, it, 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 that, that just gives me confidence. That, that I think that's, you know, and um, it, I have a faith that people see enough here that they're willing to stand up. You know, the fear is that enough good people run from the city and they give up. And well, I know I think a lot of them have for sure. And, and, you know, some of them are biding their time until their kid graduates or um, or there's a natural time to disembark. And you look at home appreciation. You know, there was just something this last week in the 91 cities in the metro area for Portland. Portland was dead last. Yeah, and the appreci- suburbs are increasing. Right. I mean, we're getting the donut effect. We are driving people out of the city to the suburbs. So all of our green initiatives, all the things that we want to push in the city around density, we Highest are... Highest income taxes in the country. We are... We are we are causing the opposite of it. We are we are pushing away density, and um, because we've made living in the city so relatively, um, I mean it, that the return on living in the city has de- declined so significantly. It's relatively unlivable. I mean, sure. I think Shariah Mayfield, who's running for Multnomah County Chair, talks very eloquently about. The fact that we have a real livability crisis in this city. That is what it is. I mean, it's like, do you, and you get to this, you know, do you want your kids to come back to Portland after they graduate from high school or college, right? Absolutely not. I mean, it's like, do do you want them to go to school in the area? Do you, you know, would you recommend to anyone with a family that they move to Portland, Oregon right now? You know, I used to be a cheerleader for Portland. I genuinely believe in this. I think we all were. How, you know, why else? 
as functioning adults, would we choose to nest here? Right. We made a choice at some point. And some we had family connections or others, but at some point there's still a conscious choice as an adult that we want to live here, that it matches enough of what we, you know, it matches our values. It's it's livable enough. But something shifted. And right now, none of that's true. I wouldn't recommend a family move to Portland uh, without a lot of consideration. Um, you know, I think all of us are generally wanting our kids to experience other parts of the country, other parts of the world, to get out of Portland when you get the chance. And, you know, gosh, if we're still here as adult, you know, as, as, uh, in, in our golden years, sure, we'd love our kids to be close. But right now, the city is not offering a sufficient life for too many people. And it's, it's uh, really for anyone. I mean, and this is the other part about all of the push around in the dialogue around equity right now. The city of Portland has become a worse place to live for everyone, for every race, for every socioeconomic class. I mean, it is declined for all of us. And um, it, it, it- Well, I, I think the decline's been much steeper for, for lack of a better phrase, BIPOC people. Um, you know, when you've got the kind of homicide rate that we have, yes, there's some of that going on on Northwest 23rd, and there's some of it going on in the Pearl District outside of Powell's, but most of it is still happening in black neighborhoods. Yeah. 50% of the homicides last year were, uh, you know, brown or black victims, you know, and you look at our population, uh, that's way out of sorts. And... The reason I frame it that way, that it's, I, I agree with you, right? I mean, the, the lowest income, um, most diverse uh, parts of our population have suffered the worst in the, this downturn in livability. But the reason I even mention this whole, in terms of equity, is that there became this kind of rationalization. We have to break stuff. We've got to restructure society to address historic equality. I have a guest on who's on the community gun violence oversight team currently, and he believes that. That we have to break it to build something better. And I, I, I'm rejecting that. I mean, we have made life worse for everyone. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's, and I think we can make life better for everyone. If we stabilize the city and we focus on livability across the board and everyone in the city benefits from a safer city, everyone in the city benefits from a cleaner city, everyone in the city it benefits from breaking the culture of enablement on, on, in, in, the, in the city. So I, um, anyways, that's why I kind of talk about it in terms of the, the language that gets, you know, in, in, in the way it's framed we rationalize the declining livability for some, you know, long-term uh, fight for equity. It's it, it it it's not playing out that way. We have made things worse for everyone. And you know, he, his name's Lionel Irving, and his argument is we had to. Now, now he's very clear that he didn't participate in any of this, and I, w- I want to be clear about that. But his argument philosophically is that. The violence in 2020 had to occur in order to bring attention to abuses by the police. 
and that nothing else would have brought that same level of attention to police abuse of power. It had to be that. Fundamentally disagree. We all saw awful things on TV. What happened in Georgia, what happened in Minnesota were awful. There's it, a killing it, here, I mean, Aaron Danielson. These are, these are all awful realities that in protest and general recognition of, uh, of that ugliness in those horrific events totally get, but you know, I'm sorry. We locked down young people and told them the only thing they could do was protest. That was the only sanctioned socialization during that summer. And, um, it, it, that's the only place they got connection. And, um, that's right. It, it, I never even thought about that. In this crazy city where we closed schools for 18 months under the guise of public health and told these kids they couldn't go to school, they couldn't play with friends, they couldn't congregate, but all these doctors signed that document that said you can and should protest. You're exactly right. And I never thought about it in that context, but of course they're going to all do that and they're going to go crazy. You know, the person who made this point, and I'm and I'm I wanna say his name correctly, but it was actually a podcast um, by uh, you know the author of uh, Woke Racism. Have you uh, heard of that book? It's uh, by John McWhorter. Oh, and I he, love John McWhorter. Yeah, so he's a you know he's a he's a black. Uh, uh, oh, did you hear this on the Glenn Show? I, it might have been. Great show. It, yeah, it, and that's it, he's on there with somebody else. Is it too? It's, it's, it's him, and everybody should check out this podcast. It's called The Glenn Show, and it usually features another podcaster. His name is John McWhorter, and he is a professor of linguistics at Columbia. He's black. Glenn Lowry is also black, and he's an MIT-trained a PhD in economics, and he's an economics professor at Brown, and they call themselves the Black Guys. Yep, and and so it was their podcast that actually I'm making the argument they raised that That's that, a great that, that, that you know you look at the intensity of the racial um, justice uh, protest during that summer, and you are looking at the underlying supposed causes of those protests. And there's no there's no explanation in in terms of the intensity of damage you know when those things all conflated relative to the events and and, and that's not discounting at all the awfulness of the underlying events but what came out of it they're you know and and, and they're a little bit humble in the way they tee that up it says this is for sociologists to unpack to go back and look at this with a historic lens but when you look at that intensity how can you not look at it with the the context in mind that these young people were locked down didn't have other outlets weren't getting exercise weren't getting socialization and we said the one thing you can do is go protest that was a that was a one and even more fundamentally to get human contact and interaction that we all you know need that's where it, it, it that's where you can get it connection you know? a event that necessi- necessitates bonding over issues that are generating primal emotional reactions. 
justifiably so. And it was that's where you could get it. You could go to get a protest. You go to a protest to be human in 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 a really. You fun couldn't way. go to a restaurant. You couldn't go to a school, but you could go to a protest. Much less you couldn't play sports. You couldn't. You know, yeah, you, couldn't play you can go. You couldn't. Cannon dance. Beach was closed. Yeah, and one of our I more mean, rational moves. You know, yeah, there was emergency tape around all the playgrounds. The worst symbol of Portland, right there, right? You can shoot up heroin in the city park, but uh, we police taped our playgrounds. I mean, it's like the the, the most horrific, you know, public health trade offs. Um, but then, and again, I mean, that's one thing for when you have young people, when or you know, little ones, uh, toddlers, and such. But 16-year-olds to 30-year-olds in the prime of their life who yeah, should these be... these guys should be playing basketball. They should be running. They, they should, should be, be dancing. They should be dating, as my wife yeah, likes to say. going into work. It's like they should be making bad decisions. Yes. You know, it's like, like they should be having like a life. And it's like, and we disrupted it all. But we said the one thing you can do is you can go protest. That is, that is the one okay activity. And then at some point we didn't say it was okay, but we... You know, we continued to accept it, and it was still their only like actual outlet for humanity. So again, that was not my original argument. It was uh, uh, from the Glenn Glenn Show, yeah, but it makes it, a lot of sense, it, it, and it, I understand what it, you're saying. It it, it 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 helps explain a fair amount, and I, or at least it's a it's a at minimum it's a hypothesis to kind of really test when you look at the intensity there. And you know. At, Fortunately, and, and this actually gives me hope. I actually, if if you accept the premise that that intensity was driven by a specific context, right? That, you know, if we start to reopen, you know, schools are open again. Kids are playing sports. Young people have access to life. You know, economic activity is starting to return. You know, at the same time, you know, we, we do have an overhang of concerns about a, a national recession. But but we'll get some tailwinds. Like if we if we if we return to life and kind of commit to it, in some ways we're already doing it. I mean, pe- people are not as much as I wish, but downtown looked better today than it has, <laughs> you know, the last seven times I've been down here. Um, and that's because there's people on the street. I mean, that that in itself, there's people walking to and from work um, or some kind of activity. That's all good. We're going to get tailwinds in um, that's one ounce of hope, right? You know, out of um, that we'll get some things breaking our way, and and what's breaking our way is just people returning to life. I know we talked switching back to homelessness for one second. I know we talked about how the reason Willamette Week is arguing that you want to criminalize homelessness is because you just want to enforce the laws on the books, and the laws on the books say no camping. And in fact, there could, if we wanted to, we could enforce criminal penalties. But here's a question. Isn't there another road? Isn't there another path we could take? Let's, this is much more daunting, I think, to put together. But Shreya Mayfield has a good idea of using our current civil guardianship Mm -hmm. process. And I think my idea is much bigger but I think you could broaden it to a civil conservatorship process. And it's like drug court where you get triaged and to the extent you're, you are service resistant and you're deemed to ha- have a addiction or mental illness out of control and you're unable to get out of one of these tents, it's like drug court, you get 
like a public defender that represents you, but instead it's civil system to be clear, it's not criminal. So it's like a advocate, a legal advocate, your own representative, and they make your arguments about why you should be either not forced to go to rehab or not forced to go to a mental institution or both. And you go through the system in that way. What do you think about engaging some kind of civil system so that we don't have to use the criminal laws on the books? You know, I, I haven't studied her proposal there, but it's really intriguing. And um, my one caveat on it right now is that I don't have, I think that's going to have to be addressed the state legislature if we go that route. I don't I think, think that it, I, I, I don't think we can do that. You Current know. guardianship laws are good. They allow you to get a court guardianship over somebody who is a danger to themselves or others. But because we, the law is so libertarian, the bar is relatively high. I mean, it, living in a tent in and of itself, I, Wouldn't even though you can't shelter yourself and are clearly unable to meet your most basic needs, I think it would be difficult to argue you're such a danger to yourself that you need a guardianship under our current laws. I think you're right. I think it would have to be addressed by the legislature. And and so any dependency right now, I'm a little bit uh, deliberately myopic in how I'm talking about homelessness. We have it, to be. It, You're it, city it, council. Right. It's, and so I often am focused on what city council can do about it. Um, and, you know, there's an element city council can be advocates and um, and uh, pushing our state legislature to do things that actually protect and help the city, much less those that are struggling with those underlying issues that, you know, by many objective standard or a objective standard, they can't take care of themselves. They literally cannot take care of themselves. And we can make some tinkering to our existing law to allow society to better protect them in many respects. So I, I, I'm intrigued by the idea, I, 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 but I'm not an expert on it. And again, it just sits in the, in the category, well, it's likely gonna be state legislature that have to address that. Um, what do you and, say to people who say, the, that we can solve this crisis of tents by rent control, by building lots of lots and lots of housing. The housing first advocates. Yeah, you put someone suffering from substance use uh, disorder in a in long term housing. They're still suffering from from substance use disorder. They're still an addict and. Um, some of the data in Schellenberg's book uh, cites some of it. You, you know, the outcomes are not great. You put an addict without sufficiently addressing the underlying causes in, in permanent housing, they don't really have great outcomes uh, by themselves. So it, waiting for it makes no sense with that lens. And also we're years away from building enough affordable housing. We may never actually ever be able to provide enough affordable housing in our uh, metro area. So, well, and I think part of what people don't understand is I, my understanding is there's a federal law that makes it incredibly expensive. It's called like a prevailing wage or something mm -hmm. that you have to pay to whoever wins the bid to build these things. So they end up costing like hundreds of thousands of dollars per person, even if it's just like a 300 square foot unit yeah I, I i have to go and i have to think about whether prevailing wage applies to any affordable housing projects 
um, and the, but so, I mean, and I, I decouple. So I, I, I think when we talk about the unsheltered, which is what most people think of as the homeless, those people on our street, we have. I think you uh, have to decouple. Uh, yeah. Mama I mean, working uh, five uh, jobs and service interested, not service resistant. Right. It's totally different than somebody on a tent. And especially those that, you know, in, 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 and when you go really macro high level, um, the unsheltered is one bucket in our long-term affordability challenges in the metro area, relative wages to the cost of housing. That is a real policy challenge here. There's no two ways about it, but the prescriptions there, to me, it really have nothing to do with what we're talking about for unsheltered. It may be during, you know, a significant economic downturn, the, those those lines aren't quite so, the, the line isn't so distinct between the two, but in general, I mean, if we want to address affordability over the medium term, we have to get more units built at a higher rate. Uh, it, by that, I mean, we're getting them through the permitting process faster. We've got to have a higher number of units built every year, at least to say commensurate with growth in population. And um, in right now, really the last three to four years, we've had a dramatic uh uh, decline in the number of multifamily permits. And it, 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 that's really bad three to five years from now. That's our, our pipeline is not filling. Why is it, that? Um, inclusionary zoning, which was venerable, uh, you know, this mandate to include certain amounts of, of below market units in uh, large multifamily uh, developments is uh, caused many projects not to pencil for developers. And so um, and it takes a long time to get a permit in the city of Portland, uh, yes, relative, uh, relative to our, our suburban neighbors. So, and the investment uh, reputation for Portland is terrible. So we're not attracting capital to invest in multifamily right now in the city of Portland. Um, I think there's a fourth bucket. We've become pretty anti-landlord with a lot of the tenant protections the last four years. That has driven a lot of the you know smaller landlords out of the out of the market. I think that that decreases the stock of, of units in the market. Additionally, you know, when you're looking at the flow of capital, when people can invest in multifamily anywhere in the country, much less anywhere in the world, do they invest in a market like Portland that is now be perceived as fairly anti-landlord? Um, plus you got a lot of crime, uncertain economic environment and a slow permitting process that's not very predictable for developers. It is an unattractive place to invest dollars. Four years ago, that was a very different reality. And um, in Taboot, you include inclusionary zoning that just really changes how the return for some of those investments. What do you think of this latest idea that Multnomah County leaders announced, a program dubbed Move in Multnomah, that offers city incentives to private landlords who agree to rent apartments to homeless people? Portland Mercury basically said, if you're a landlord, you're crazy not to take the city up on this because the city pays for the homeless person's rent, plus city repairs for damage for one year. Yeah, and I think some of the, I, 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 I you know, you got to get land, enough landlords to sign up, right? And so if you're a landlord and playing through, you know, the pluses and minuses of, of doing that, because, you know, right so far, they've not had a lot of landlords be willing to do it. And one of which, well, do other tenants want someone with untreated mental illness or untreated um, substance use disorders in their apartment building, right? And ignore the landlord's consent. You know, it, it's just 
because that landlord's other tenants want them there. And um, so that becomes a landlord problem if no of none of the other tenants want to live next to someone with untreated, serious underlying issues. And um, it, it, and by the way, you hear that even from, um, there's, a, there's a lot of segments of the population that are um, impacted by some of the things you do in multifamily. You hear this sometimes from seniors who need um, really support. They yeah, need some social security. They, they don't have the money to. And, and you know, the, of, they want to be in a senior only home. They don't want to be in a, you know, some sort of subsidized housing with people that are not treating the, you know, mental illness, not treating their substance use disorder. So, you know, do I like the idea? Sure. The idea is fine, you know, and, and find, working with landlords where there are vacancies um, to what incentives you can give landlords for them to open those up to uh, homeless. But it's not dumb for landlords to have serious trepidation about participating in those programs. Then you fast forward, you know, to six months, nine months from someone being placed in a in one of those buildings what happens if they turn out to be a very difficult tenant? What happens if, you know, for legitimate reasons, you no longer want them there as a landlord, right? And you couple that with all of the tenant protections we put in place. You know, I, I think we really have to look at both how those tenant protections apply in that sp specific situation. I, I'm, oh, it'll I'm, turn into another red house situation. Yes. It'll be front and center on the paper and they're going to raise $250,000 to keep that homeless person in your apartment. And you don't think landlords are already <laughs> projecting how this is going to play out, right? I mean, it's like, it's, 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 uh, and so why they might be reluctant to sign up right away. I, it's, it's so fine. It's a venerable idea. Let's think about, let's talk about it. Um, and in what I would more fundamentally say, continue to look at the sticks and carrots uh, to get multi-family landlord and capital to align with some of what the city's trying to do there. Um, I think that's an ongoing conversation that you continue to have that, what, what incentives you can give to, to get landlords to, to participate, but it is not going to put a short-term significant dent in this problem of lack of shelter in the city. I mean, it's, you know, it's in, um, so is one of your priorities going to be to build shelters and how will you go about doing that? And will that be distinguished from Dan Ryan's, say, safe rest villages and neighborhoods? We have to consider big shelters. That has to be on the table. Expo Center, we should have a deal done already there. I mean, that's taken way too long. Um, safe villages, I mean, the challenges with low barrier, right, are the externalities on neighborhoods and the <laughs> problems for other folks who want shelter and they're like the tenant in the scenario we just walked through. They don't want to be in a shelter if with someone who is not getting treatment for their mental illness or their substance use disorder or engaging criminal activity. So I think we're going to have to have we're going to have to have a continuum of low barrier to high uh, barrier, and we cannot reject categorically the inclusion of high barrier shelter as a part of the solution we don't have a choice we're going to because we have a whole segment of the population that bounces right back and forth between being able to be you know relatively self-sufficient but then kind of you know you miss a paycheck you lose a job they fall they can they can fall into homelessness whether they fall into unsheltered is a little different you know 
topic, but that we are still creating an environment for that segment of our homeless and unsheltered where we can give them the support they need, but they don't have to live in a highly dangerous place for their family, right? And so I, that's it, it, the bottom line. We still line. have to have barrier family shelters. Without question, saying. without question. I mean, no parent would put their children, um, you know, in an in a no barrier shelter situation. I mean, on, on the streets of Portland, no one would do that um, if they had any reasonable alternative. And those reasonable alternatives at that time, I completely understand why a family would want to sleep in a car, in an RV, sleep in a park away from anyone else if they had no other choice than to live in certain, you know, low barrier uh, shelter scenarios where there's no rules, where there's no uh, requirements. Um, the, the flip side of that is you look at the data, historically, we've done a fairly good job of supporting families. We and, have. I mean, I mean, I've been working downtown for about 20 years. I've never seen a family emerge from a tent. No, it's a, you know, it's a couple or a dude, you know, I mean, that's, it's a lot of white dudes and it's mostly people, white men and a, and a few couples, but it's, it's a lot of white men and it's, it's, uh, so, I, I mean, it, it, bottom line, we're going to have to have a spectrum of, of, of shelter options, but the priority has to be giving as many shelter spaces and safe sleeping and safe parking spaces up as quickly as we possibly can. And um, that includes big shelter options. Um, it's simply we can't put a dent in this problem without talking scale at some level. And that's going to require things like the Expo Center. Safe, uh, safe village scenario, I mean, a number of issues there. Of course, a neighborhood, again, go back to the tenant, look to the family that doesn't want to live next to someone who is not treating their mental illness, that is not treating their, um, you know, substance use disorder. The same applies to a neighborhood. Nobody wants their kids sleeping next to a, a shelter that has no barriers to it, right? No requirements for behavior and much less, and I think this, Wheeler finally came around on this. I think they. That's they did, my understanding. And he, in, including promises to enforce, you know, the law around those those uh, shelters. But because the ordinance says that they're moving in high, quote unquote, high impact homeless people to those shelters, and that includes people who are engaged in verified criminal activity. That's in the ordinance. That's why all these people, like Helping Hands, who were who had signed up to monitor and keep these places safe, bowed out and said, "We're n- we can't do this." They actually, a listener of the podcast brought the ordinance to Helping Hands, and mm. they read it. Nobody has read this thing, and they sat down and read it and said, "There is no way we can keep people safe. We can't own." We can't only not keep the neighborhood safe. We can't keep the people in this shelter safe if we're not screening for sex offenders. If we're bringing in people engaged in verified, it, it, it's called high impact homeless, verified criminal activity, conspicuous drug use, hazardous materials, hundreds of syringes. Who would sign up to do that? I mean, you'd need like. Uh, the, the National Guard, an armed National Guard. I mean, it's like a supermax. 
Yeah, it's it's so. We're gonna put these in neighborhoods, and and you expect neighborhoods not to object. That's the part that you know we get this judgment, this NIMBY, this you know these labels again. Getting back to the label topic, what parent would not object to that, right? What I mean, it, what 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 senior would not object to that? And it it um, so I, I think it's been misplaced there, but we do get to a really difficult issue. Where are we going to find space for shelter, right? Like, this is a hard one for our, yeah, I mean. Where do we put those people? Because they, they're all out there, and they're the ones, because they are so high impact, that we hear and see the most from. And where do they go if we don't have a, a system to put them through? Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, and there's, and, and then facing the brutal reality. We may never solve homelessness, right? Like, we will, you know, we'll be here 50 years later and we have we will not have solved homelessness there will always be a segment of the population that is unsheltered right i mean just accepting that as a as a reality of modern life um but can we make it materially better than what it is right now and i think we can by we we look big when that's in play right of expo center we can get a deal there that makes a dent in in the unsheltered population we also look outside the city. I don't understand why we're so limited in looking at solutions here um, to a city problem. Well, the city problem is a regional problem. Homelessness is a regional problem. Mental illness and drug addiction are certainly beyond the cities. We didn't cause that. It just, we have created an environment where it gets sort of uh, inflamed. But it, it, so I think when you're talking about shelter solutions, we have to put on the table. We got to look in the entire metro area to find shelter space. And, and some people say, "Well, you're shipping them out of the city." We're going to offer shelter space. We that may mean it's not in the city of Portland. We're offering shelter. The city of Portland may end up paying for it. May have to cut a deal with a neighbor to you know. But you're thinking of things like the opposition of Wapato, because right? Because opposition was they've got to be in the city where the resources are, which is so funny because everybody. All the houseless advocates were for these safe rest shelters, which are not where the services are. They're in places like Eastmoreland and Laurelhurst. Right. But it, that, putting that aside, I think that's more of like a, a rich tax, and that's why that was popular. Like, let's go put this in neighborhoods that historically don't experience tents in their front yards kind of a deal, although... I can tell you from experience, more and more we are ex ex experiencing that without a safe rest shelter. Um, it, certainly Laurelhurst is. They have that enormous encampment. I, but with Wapato, I think the idea was, look, we'll just ship the social services that they need there and we'll pay to do it. Yeah, and they're doing it. I mean, it's, and it, you're saying we can do this outside the city as well? I think we have to open that as a possibility. I mean, we're, this is the highest density, right, in the metro is actually in the city. So well, finding people a, need to live and, live and work here. I mean, I think, I mean, there's going to be a pop segment of the population that are actually working downtown or working in the city that, yes, we've, proximity to where they work is one thing. But when you're talking about those people, in, that's the, not people in tents. Right. I mean, it's like they're not a, crawling out of their tent to walking, walk down to the restaurant. Walking up down Pioneer Place. Right. Yeah. It's it, it's 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 so finding a place for them to have shelter. I think we have to look at the whole metro area as as options, and also recognizing a certain segment will continue to be service resistant. Right. I mean, part of that is a really pragmatic trade off for the city. 
we have to find reasonable shelter that is better than what they're living in right now and offer them that. And hopefully a substantial portion will take us up on that. A portion though, and again, this is the hard question that nobody ever wants to confront, a portion of them will not accept that offer of shelter. And that's when we can start cleaning up our sidewalks and cleaning up our parks, right? And that's when we can, with a, ethically, from a compassionate perspective, we can say decisively, we are moving those RVs from the east side of the river that are this litter our neighborhoods that you cannot park there. You are offered another place. The city of Portland will offer you another place to park there uh, or, or another place for you to park your vehicle. Um, and if you refuse, then your car may get impounded. Your RV may get impounded, you know, the, um, and more broadly, you may have to face the criminal justice system. And it's that's the sort of the tough love trade-off, but I, I think we have no choice. And uh, one, the first part of that is humanitarian. I think that is to offer better than what they have on the streets of Portland. And frankly, if we can get some size that allows us to conjugate services, and on the, on the other side, that helps the city kind of heal from this, right? That we actually are able to enforce our existing law. And I, I don't run from saying we need to eventually enforce our existing law. There, it was on the books for a reason so that we can continue to function as a city. How do you, how does your plan work though when Mike Schmidt is the DEA? I mean, he is unabashedly pro-de-incarceration. I can't imagine that he would yeah. for this. I mean, Schmidt is... Um, uh, you know, at some point we need a DA in the city of Portland whose primary focus is to prosecute, right? I mean, that is the fundamental responsibility of a DA is to prosecute. And, uh, to, and so, um, you know, hopefully someday he gets his religion or he's replaced, right? I mean, it's, it's one or the other. And, and by the way, Schmidt gets, you know, hammered for a lot of our unwillingness to prosecute. But we there's some long-term trends in Multnomah County that predate Schmidt in terms of closure rates and in terms of what we were prosecuting. He's just kind of the, you know, the the figurehead for a movement that's been going on for a long time in, in the city of Portland. We haven't invested in a criminal justice system. It's not you know, popular. It, it, it wasn't popular. It never has been. You know, I mean, it, we didn't invest in jail space. We don't have enough prosecutors. We don't Nobody have enough public wants defenders. to spend money on jail space. It's like the yeah. least attractive thing to spend money on, right? And it's like, so, you know, Schmidt is, a, you know, where he sits right now, yeah, he's a symbol of really... Uh, uh, he is a symbol of our basically kind of lawlessness because we don't have a DA that, you know, purports to want to prosecute the law, but he, he is just part of a longer term trend in Multnomah County. And um, we're going to need multiple years of investments in our criminal justice system to have, you know, to, to frankly, to be able to say directly, you violate the law, you're going to get prosecuted in Multnomah County. I mean, you can't infer. That's only true for a very small percentage of crimes right now. And uh, it, it uh, um, so recognizing the problem, but he's just one, he's just the figurehead on a whole movement as far as I'm concerned. I can he hear inside people's heads listening to this thinking, okay, Renee Gonzalez is talking about incarceration. He's been endorsed by the police union. Um, as you know, Willamette Week endorsed Joanne Hardesty and said that they believe she's good on the issue of police accountability. What do you say to somebody who's thinking about 
voting for you and likes a lot of your policies, but they're worried you won't hold police accountable for abuses or overreach because maybe you're beholden to this union that endorsed you. Yeah, I mean, so we cannot have a free society without communal and societal oversight of police, right? I mean, that's it. we don't have a free society without it. It's such a cornerstone. It's so fundamental. And, um, you know, you either believe in our democratic institutions, you either believe in a free society or you don't. I believe in a free society. And that means police always answer to elected officials. They always are subject to community oversight. Um, it's a, it, it's just, that, that's a given, that's a reality. So um, I, on the, and at the same time, the state legislature adopted over 20 pieces of police accountability over so, legislation. I mean, and that directly impact the way police inter, interact uh, on the streets of Portland. I mean, massive changes, massive legislative changes to how policing is done in the state of Oregon, much less the city of Portland. I would submit we need a little bit of time to figure out the full impacts of, you know, the, that sweeping legislation. Let's implement it. Let's see how it works. What, you know, collect what, some data. Right. And I mean, you know, and, and quickly they did correct some things uh, in the special session that they concluded. Boy, we went, you know, we, we need to refine some pieces and, and to clarify some pieces. And to the legislature's credit, they did address some pieces of it. But I, I one last piece. I, I am I am the son of a judge and a federal in a former federal prosecutor. And the while I believe to have a free society, you need to have a functioning criminal justice system, and you need to have communal oversight. There is such thing as a cowboy cop. This was a term that my dad used from a very young. These are you know people believe they're above the law because they have a badge and. That is also a deeply ingrained value that they are accountable to our society. And so um, I, um, you know, people either accept that those are cornerstones of the way I look at the world or not. And, um, and at the, fl the, the flip side is that we cannot have a functioning city. No, no city in history has functioned for an extended period of time without some form of law enforcement. Now, now, whether that's a police department or some other, you know, form of um, protecting society, we it's, it's a requirement to live in a city that we have a functioning criminal justice system and a police uh, a, a force of some sort, at least in modern, in a modern world. And um, my, what do you say to people who say, well, you're just lacking in imagination. We can reimagine a society. I mean, this was, there were refrains of this, including from officials in Portland and in Oregon. Generally, we can reimagine policing so that the, the traditional notions of police and law and order don't exist anymore. I think they're batshit crazy. And I mean, there it's, it's, I mean, and they can, they're free to go pursue their YouTube. You sound like Betsy Johnson. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, you know, I, well, there's just a realism about people. I mean, you know, people are always kind of that combination of good and bad. And every one of us were that mix of it. And you aggregate us at, you know, 600,000 plus people. There are good forces in the city and there are bad forces in the city. And 
You know, I, um, who is going to respond when someone's breaking into your home at night? Who's going to protect your spouse or your children when you're not there? You know, I, I'm six foot, 200 pounds on a good day. Um, I, I can do okay taking care of myself. And I will, you know, stop at nothing to protect my wife or my children. I cannot be in every part of the city with them, right? And much less protect the seniors down the street. And who does that? Who responds? It's the police. You, you can't scale a society without that. And I'd like them to cite an example in history, at least modern history, where you had a large number of people able to function without some form of law enforcement. Well, I think one of the things that Willamette Week would say and did say is that, look, a lot of people in Portland believe that armed officers simply should not be responding to calls involving mentally ill people in any way, shape, or form. I, I think that ignores, you know, stuff that, like what happened in Old Town. One mentally ill man kills another mentally ill person. Um, but, of course, they were praising Joanne Hardesty for the idea that we should get rid of armed officers responding to those calls and they should be triaged with mental health workers. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, my, I mean, my wife was a social worker for a number of years, and um, her take on this was always, look, you don't know which instance that you're called to is going to turn violent. And well, the police it, will tell you one of the most violent calls they get are domestic violence calls. Yes, and which is often the social workers, you know, is the preferred intercession exactly. there. And it's um, you and you just don't know. There's a certain percentage that are going to go wrong and that are going to turn violent where a um, so I think I think everybody wants non-violent interaction with those having a mental health crisis, right? And that by non-violent, I mean, we literally, we would prefer that the interaction be with someone who does not have a gun, who can does not have deadly force at their fingertips. And that's still the preferred path, but we also have to build a system. When you're talking at scale, when you're servicing hundreds, thousands of folks over a year's time suffering from mental um distress uh, or a mental instance some of those are going to turn violent you have to have someone there to protect those that are trying to intercede that are trying to provide services so portland street response i mean i think it's a venerable program let's continue to test it let's continue to figure out the best way to deploy it um it it but the caveats have to be if we're dependent on a 911 dispatcher to get it right every single time we get a call in there's someone in mental distress are we uh, are we going to rely on a human being to make an assessment in 30 seconds that that is not a violent incident that doesn't require the police that that can be addressed by Portland Street response it can be addressed and by a soldier over the phone over the phone not right looking at. exactly and so it, they're going to get it wrong a certain percentage of the time again at any scale human beings fail sometimes they misdiagnose and in that instance of a 30 second not present that you're expecting them to get it right at a high percentage i just i think we need to be realistic on um uh, on how many times we're actually still going to need a police officer we're still going to need force unfortunately or protection to protect the social worker uh, what else do people need to know about you and anything else you want to say before we sign off here? Um, 
You know, I, I think our city's worth fighting for, and we're in the middle of a kind of a crazy fight right now for it. And um, it is it is kind of a historic point in the city. I do think we're at a, I, I say it over and over again, I almost get tired of hearing, but we are at an inflection point in the city. And I think that's true for a lot of Western cities, but particularly Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and, you know, if you're centrist, speak up, hold the line. I mean, it's it's we will not have a city if rational people don't speak up right now. Well, that's part of the reason why I came out under who I am with my name. I mean, what was interesting is when people figured out who I was and it didn't take very long, some of my clients would say, hey, I know about your podcast and immediately... I got kind of worried that, oh, maybe they disagree and they won't want me to represent them anymore. And instead it was, I don't think you're coming out strong enough on mass on kids. (laughs) I mean, it was things that it was, I realized I was centrist enough that it wasn't going to alienate a ton of people. And once you're called racist or white supremacist a few times, you get over it. And on that point, I since I've started running, like the, the the crazy irony has been that I I sometimes run into like old Republican men in this town. It's like Renee, you got to stop sounding so Republican on the campaign trail. <laughs> and I talk to Democratic women, moms in the and city. Don't think it's, you're like, it's like you got to be way fucking clear, Renee. You got to like spell it out and like you got to be more direct, Renee. And I got it, a criticism of you about that a mom specifically a, a democrat for a lifer democrat said he is not strong enough on the police issue and i said he's been endorsed by the police union i don't know how you get stronger but yeah it's funny that you say it's women in particular and i wonder if it's that paradigm shift that incurred during the school closures but i think it, it something shifted in us all and 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 any mom raising a kid in a portland seattle san francisco type city uh, i think we all changed i mean dad's changed mom's changed and um there um there's just a degree of directness that wasn't there before I'll, we'll take it <laughs> thanks renee thank you. Appreciate you coming in Wasn't he great? I find Renee Gonzalez so inspiring. Remember, he's running for city council to unseat Joanne Hardesty. I love it that he stands up for what he thinks is right and calls bullshit. There aren't enough people doing that right now in the city of Portland. Let's all do that. One way you can speak out, even if you want to do so anonymously, you can DM me on Twitter at Rational and PDX with your tips and stories. I promise if you want, you will remain anonymous. If you want to support the podcast, please subscribe and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time.